0: Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. Revelation is a book that sometimes it can be uh, an obsession for some people. It's a book that, that uh, like one of the one of the guys that I was reading in preparation for it, he said that he used to go to a church where, in a period of two years, they preached through the entire book of Revelation twice. So just you know, imagine that. Like, think about the rate of that we at we at which we preach here. So I don't even think we could finish the book of Revelation in two years. But anyway, um, but on the other hand, there are churches that or people that tend to neglect the book of Revelation, right? Because it, it, is, it is so complicated. It has so many difficult things in it that the, the you know it almost seems like the two options are either obsess about it or just completely neglect it and ignore it and say, no, I'm just going to leave that to people who are more into it than me. And um, we don't want to fall into any of those, right? We want to read it. With the rest of Scripture, we want to treat it like that we treat the rest of the book of the, of the Bible, which, in a sense, we should be obsessed with the Bible, right? We should be reading it all the time, and we should want to know what it means. Um, and and certainly, we do not want to neglect uh, going through the whole counsel of God, right? Which the book of Revelation is included here. Um So let's read uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and I think we're just going to read to chapter 2, verse 5. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this revelation that your son Jesus gave to John and to these churches and that now has been passed on to us. Thank you that we can look into it, learn from it. Thank you for the message that is here, Lord, before us. And I pray that with every other book in the Bible, that your name would be glorified, that we would see your glory, that we would see your greatness, we would see your power and dominion, and that we would be encouraged, and that we would be nurtured. So please guide us as we look into this book, as we study this small section today. I pray that you guide us. I pray that you lead me by your Spirit that you direct my words and, and what I'm going to say, Lord, that you open our hearts and our minds to understand this revelation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so the revelation of Jesus Christ. First of all, the name revelation, right? So this is a revelation. This is something that is supposed to bring light to something even though sometimes it looks like it's actually obscuring things or making things more complicated. But just the simple fact that this is a revelation means that it should clarify things up. Or it means that it should reveal something that we previously didn't know, right? So this is a revelation and this is coming from Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one giving this revelation. It, this, is, this is of divine uh, origin. This is not something that John was born in the, in the island of Patmos and he was like, hmm, I'm just going to make something up to encourage the churches in Asia. No, he received this revelation directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the original audience, the, ch- the churches in Asia, as well as us, we do well to take heed of these words, to pay careful attention, because these words are from God. These words are from the Lord Jesus Christ. So the order is which, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, that is the churches in Asia, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So something important there, to to take notice of is that it says in in verse one, Jesus was revealing to his servants to the seven church, to the seven churches the things that must soon take place, and so it is interesting that he is he is mentioning he he is introducing this book by telling them that the things that they're about to read or hear because it was read aloud to them, these were things that were going to take place. Soon, quickly, pronto. Right? They were things that were going to happen. They should have expected those things to happen probably within their lifetime, or maybe, you know, a generation later, or whatever. That's that's the way that prophecy works. When we look into the old testament prophets, the things that they are prophesying about. And if they say that is something that is going to take place soon, well, then they expect those things to happen in their historical context. And so I think it is really important for us that we take notice of this. These are things that are, to, that are going to take place soon. At the end of the book, at the end of Revelation in, in chapter 22, verse 10, Jesus tells John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. This is happening soon. This is actually contrasted by the words that Daniel, the prophet Daniel received, right? To him, to Daniel, he is told, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So Daniel is being told, everything that you you are receiving as a revelation is not going to happen yet. Daniel is also told, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. But John, in comparison, is told that these things are soon going to take place. These things are going to happen quickly. Now, this is important because it, it affects the way that we read the book of Revelation, right? Uh, there are different ways, different approaches to interpreting the book of Revelation. One of them that is extremely popular is to take pretty much everything from chapter four to the very end to take it as things that are going to happen in the future sometime in the future even from our perspective Um, but like someone said that i that i i heard a podcast where someone said the future is malleable you can make the future say whatever you want it to say right so you look into these prophecies and say oh well so maybe you know 666 and you start counting the numbers of the vaccination of today and you can somehow make the vaccination or bill gates or whatever you want to make be the mark of the beast right because the future is malleable you you, you can do i'm sure that believers throughout the ages of the church have been trying to assign meanings to the prophecies in the book of Revelation. But the thing is that he was telling that he was speaking specifically to the churches in Asia and he was telling them that these things were going to take place soon. And like I was saying, the future is malleable, but the past I mean, yeah, you can revise the past, you know, people do it all the time. But at least there are documents, there are historical documents in which you can go and compare and say, "Oh, interesting. Nero uh uh you know, if, if you, we're, we're not even going to get into that. But you can actually look into the past and say, okay, a lot of these things actually match up with things that happened historically. Things that happened with the Roman Empire. Things that happened in Jerusalem. So that's, that's kind of the approach that we're taking in studying this book. We're looking at this book as things that are going to happen really soon from their perspective. From the original's audience perspective. Now, there is a blessing for those who read this book, right? Verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Once again, the time is near. So this letter was supposed to be given to the seven churches. It was probably going to be read in uh, geographical order. So starting with the church of Ephesus, they were going to read it first then they were going to pass it to the church of Smyrna, then they were going to pass it to the church of Pergamum, then they were going to pass it to the church of uh, Thyatira, they were going to pass it to the church of Sardis, and they were going to pass it to the church of Philadelphia. And finally, they were going to pass it to the church of Laodicea. And so, it's mostly in geographical order that this is happening. And what they were, probably, what they were supposed to do is, they were supposed to read this letter in their church gathering. Whenever they were gathered... Someone or maybe a few people would read through the letter. And so that's why it says that blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear. Because they were people, most of the people didn't have this in front of them. They were actually just hearing what was read. But notice that it is not only those who read. It's not only those who hear. But it is those who keep. What is written? It is those who obey what is written. So John is certainly, uh, you know, in, in, in a Jesus-like fashion, he is reminding his readers that there is no point in just reading or hearing the words of Christ, but you have to act on them. You have to listen to them. You have to obey. Remember the parable, right? The, the, the foolish man, he built his house. On the sand, but the wise man, he built his house on the rock. And the wise man is the one that hears the word of God, hears the words of Jesus, and acts, is a hearer who is a doer. So, by God's providence, even though this letter was originally addressed to the churches in Asia, by God's providence, we are here today and we are reading this letter out loud. By God's providence, this church got this uh, letter was preserved and, and was passed on throughout the ages, and now we have this letter right in front of us and so I think that the exhortation is the same for us. let us not be like the like the fool who built his house on the sand. let us be like the wise man. When we read this letter, let us make sure that we are listening that we are obeying the words of Christ so one thing that I Keep repeating, and and hopefully I've made my point clear, but verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. The original audience of this letter are the churches that are in Asia. Not just chapters 1 through 4, and then the audience all of a sudden changes, but the whole letter is addressed to the churches that are in Asia. Asia. In fact, at the very end of the letter, in, verse, in chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. So the entirety of the book is originally addressed to the churches that are in Asia, these seven churches that we just talked about. And so this means that this entire book is a letter. It's like Paul writing to the Thessalonians or Paul writing to the Ephesians or uh, Peter writing to the, to the scattered Jews in, in Asia. This is to be read as a letter. And this is the way that is to be interpreted. Now, unlike Ephesians and Thessalonians, this letter is loaded with apocalyptic prophecy right so it is like the other letters but in another huge sense it's not like the other letters in that it has a lot of apocalyptic literature a lot of symbolism a lot of uh, uh, prophetic words but in that sense we treat it as a letter but we could also treat it as an old testament uh prophetic book right we can think of it and say okay so This is a book filled with prophecies and one clue that we have is the way that we interpret Old Testament books. So maybe we could apply this, we could use the same interpretation for the book of Revelation. So in a sense, we could approach this book as a prophetic letter to the churches. Now, this doesn't mean that the book of Revelation doesn't have any value to us since we are not the original audience. And since these things were supposed to take place really soon after they were written. We wouldn't say that of any other book in the Bible, right? We wouldn't say, well, because most of the prophecy in the book of Joel was already fulfilled. So I guess the book is not worth reading or spending time. Or what does the book have to say to us if it already took place? Or, well, because the church of Ephesians was written to to the Ephesians then I guess it just doesn't have anything to do with us. No, that's not what we do. We still read those books. We still learn the original audiences of those books, original message. We, we try to learn as much as we can about those books, and then we make the jump, or we build the bridge and say, okay, what are the implications for us? What are the implications of these things for us today? So he opens, uh, he, uh, or I should say, he continues his, his, uh, the opening of his letter in verse 4, right? John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, And the ruler of kings on earth. So John opens his letter a little bit differently than than most of the other New Testament letters. In the other New Testament letters, there's always the grace and peace to you, but usually it is grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, or something along those lines. But I guess John gets a little bit more creative in his in his addressing to the to the churches in Revelation, and he says, Instead of saying God the Father, he says, from him who is and who was and who is to come. Or, like we sang uh, uh, at the beginning of our gathering from, from uh, Daniel, he is the ancient of days. God is the one who has been from eternity past and who will be until or forever, for eternity future. God is the one who who is there forever. He is infinite. He is eternal. From the seven spirits who are before his throne. I must acknowledge that this one is a little bit challenging. What does it mean seven spirits? Does it just mean that the Holy Spirit is seven spirits or that there's seven holy spirits or what's going on? Well, what I believe that is going on is that since the letter is addressed to seven different churches and there is a slightly different message to each one of the churches. It's almost like the Spirit is addressing this message in a sevenfold manner. So the Holy Spirit is inspiring and speaking prophetically to these seven churches in, in seven, seven different ways. It's kind of like in Isaiah 11 verses one to two, there, there is a sense in which we can talk about uh, a, a multifold or a sevenfold Spirit of God, right? In Isaiah 11, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a brand from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So I believe that this is a similar sense in which the Spirit is multifold and is bringing. Seven or applying the message to seven different churches. This is actually really interesting and it's, and it's important for us to notice that the letter was addressed to all seven churches and the letter was supposed to be applicable to all seven churches but at the same time it's almost like each, each one of the churches has a different introduction. And this is, this is important because it means that the rest of the book, chapter 5 through chapter 22, applies differently to each one of the churches. So, to all of the churches, they, they, there is a command given to conquer. There is a calling to conquer. But I believe that the conquering looks a little bit different depending on what your church was struggling with or how your church was doing. So for example, for the church that, that Jesus is, I know where you dwell. I know that you dwell where, where Satan dwells and I know your persecution. Then conquering means standing strong against persecution, standing strong against the influence of the enemy. But for the church that is said, you have given into sexual immorality and you are eating food sacrificed to the idols, then conquering means repent. Repent from your sin, repent from your unfaithfulness and come back to the Lord. So think about this. If you are one of the churches that is given a lot of uh, commendations and and Jesus is saying, I know your works, you are faithful. Then the rest of the book is like, oh, this is amazing. The Lord Jesus is going to come in judgment against our enemies, against those who are persecuting us. The Lord Jesus is going to come and destroy the Roman empire that is oppressing us at the moment. But if you are one of the unfaithful ones, then this is frightening. The Lord Jesus, the one that has a sword coming out of his mouth, is coming and destroying you if you do not repent. So in this sense, the Holy Spirit is inspiring this same letter to the seven different churches in seven different forms, in seven different ways. Now, Jesus is also described in this this welcoming, and it says, verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. He is the faithful witness, or the word could also be translated as martyr. And I believe, I, I actually prefer the translation martyr, because several people in these churches, they were being martyred. They were being killed. They were being persecuted because of their faith in Christ. And I believe that John and and ultimately Jesus is trying to encourage the churches by showing them how they are united to Christ, even in his martyrdom, even in his suffering. Some Some of the believers in the churches, they were being killed. They were being persecuted, but they had the encouragement of knowing That this was not in vain or that they were not alone in this, but that Jesus had been martyred before them. That he was the faithful martyr, that they were following Jesus' example. That they had the privilege of suffering for the sake of their Messiah. But he was not just a martyr. He didn't just stay dead. He is the firstborn. Of the dead. He is the first one to be resurrected. And this was also supposed to give them comfort and hope because, especially knowing that their friends had already been killed and knowing that maybe they were next in line to be killed, it was so comforting to know that the Lord whom they served had already conquered death. It was so comforting for them to know that Jesus, even though he was a martyr, he had risen from the dead. And they had the hope that Jesus was not going to be the only one. He was just the firstborn of the dead. But there were going to be a lot more. All of the believers in Christ, whether they died because of persecution, because of martyrdom, whether they died because of sickness, or whatever the cost, they knew that if Jesus rose from the dead, we have the assurance and the hope that we will rise from the dead as well. He is a faithful witness or martyr. He is the firstborn of the dead, and he is the ruler of kings on earth. And again, I believe this is also intended to encourage the believers in Asia. Because at the time, the kings of the earth were oppressing them. At the time, the, the emperor of Rome, which I believe was Nero at the time, he was persecuting the church, he was uh, oppressing. The church. The Roman Empire just seemed so powerful. It was just so great. Such a great, in the sense of big, empire. And these believers needed to know, they needed to be reminded that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. Whether it be the emperor Nero, whether it be the kings of the surrounding nations threatening to invade, it didn't matter who it was. Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. Which means, by the way, that Jesus is reigning. He is reigning at the time that this letter is being written. He is reigning today. And this should give us hope as well, because even though our situation is not nearly as bad as it was for the people in Asia Minor, there is definitely some uh, difficult or difficulties that we are going through. And some say there are even more difficulties that we're going to go through. I don't, we don't know. We don't know the future. But we do have the hope and the assurance that Jesus is ruler over the kings of the earth, that Jesus is ruler over the president of the United States, whoever that may be. That Jesus is ruler over the governor of Washington State, whoever that may be. That Jesus is the ruler over any and every king and ruler and governor and president and prime minister in the world. So just like for the people in Asia Minor, when when Rome was in power, they needed to be reminded who the real king is, we also need to be reminded that Jesus is king. He is in power. He is in control. So he gives a doxology. He hasn't even made it past his introduction or his salutation. And he's already broken forth in in a doxology. A doxology is a word of praise to God. And so in verse five, in the second half of verse five, he says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to God, his father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. To him who loves us just as he loves the churches in Asia, he loves us who are his today. And just as he freed Those in the churches in Asia from their sins by his blood, he has freed us from our sins by his blood as well. Jesus, the king, the ruler of the universe, the faithful martyr, the firstborn of the dead, he loves us. Do you you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus loves you? And if you needed some proof of that. He freed us by his blood. I mean, there is no greater love than that, right? To give your life for your friends. It was his blood. It was his blood that was paid for our ransom, for our freeing. It was his blood that was. Uh, what washed us from our sin. In other words, it was impossible for us to be freed from our sin, to be redeemed from our sin, to be washed from our sin, unless there was the shedding of blood, the blood of Jesus. And so the reason why we worship a lamb that was slain is because he was slain for us. He was slain to give us freedom from our sin. He was slain to redeem us from our biggest problem in this world and in the universe and and eternity, our sin. And he made us a kingdom. We are members of this. or or, not only is he the king of the rulers or or not only is he the ruler of the kings of the earth he made us a kingdom and this was also important for the believers in asia minor they needed to realize they needed to remember that their identity was not in if some of them maybe were roman citizens it was not in the roman citizenship it was not in the greatness of the roman empire Their identity was not in their Greek roots. Their identity was not even, you know, in their Persian roots. Their identity was in their citizenship of the kingdom of God. They were citizens of the kingdom of God. And they needed to be reminded of that. They needed to be reminded that the Roman Empire was a temporary power. They needed to be reminded that the power of Caesar and the power of the Roman Empire and and the power of the world, it was all temporary. And really, that's what the book of Revelation does. It kind of takes you back or takes you up, takes you out of the picture, and just shows you what everything looks like from God's perspective. And in the same way, I think that we need to be reminded about our identity as citizens of the kingdom. Our identity is not in this country. Our identity is not in our citizenship of America. Our, our identity is in our heavenly citizenship. It's not Our identity is not our ethnic background or our heritage or our socioeconomic class or anything. Our identity is in that we are citizens of God's kingdom. He has made us a kingdom. This is a kingdom that started as a mustard seed and that is growing to become a full-grown tree. This is a kingdom that in plain sight might be sometimes indistinguishable from the world or it might not be as noticeable, right? We're not out there with, armies and, and, you know, fighting against other nations or anything like that. But we are a kingdom, a kingdom that is growing, a kingdom that is in this world. We are not just a kingdom or we're not just any kingdom. It says, he made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. So we are a kingdom of priests, meaning that we have access to God, meaning that we can enter into God's presence, meaning that we can approach Him, we can approach the throne of grace. Through the work of Jesus on the cross, we can directly access the Father. This was not something that the people of Israel could do. They needed to have special people, the Levites. And even within the Levites, they needed to have a special priest that could go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice. But we are a kingdom of priests. Every single one of us who believes in Christ, who has been redeemed and washed and freed by the blood of Jesus, can enter the presence of God. And we can mediate the presence of God to other people as well. In fact, that's what we are called to do. We are called to be representatives of God's kingdom, representatives of God to the world. Which means that when people interact with us, we should be, it's almost as if we're holding their hand on one end and we're holding God's hand on the other hand. And we are mediating between people and God. We are bringing people to God. To this king that gave his blood for us, to this king that made us a kingdom, that made us priests, to his God and father, to this king that was the faithful martyr, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Let's pray. King Jesus, we worship you. We hail your name. You are ro- ruler of kings on earth. You are the faithful witness. You are the firstborn of the dead. I pray that as we look into this letter, into this revelation, we would be encouraged. We would be assured. Of Your power, we would be reminded of your power, whatever anxiety we may have because of the, uh, the world, the news, whatever it is that is that, that we're lending into our hearts and our minds. The antidote to that is seeing your glory in the book of Revelation and in the whole Bible as we look into your glory as we worship you, as we see just how great you are. Everything else in this world just seems so small and insignificant. The nations of the world just seem so small and insignificant. The events of the world just seem so small and insignificant when we see how great you are, how holy and perfect you are. Please guide us, please lead us in our study of Revelation. And may your name be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.